This episode is sponsored by Vision Trust. Vision Trust is an organization that provides essential support in the areas of health, education, and spiritual development to children and adolescents living in poverty around the world. Vision Trust is brimming with female role models who are investing in the next generation of women. Their love is defiant. It stands strong against all odds, and yours can too. Join us in raising up confident young women that embrace their God-given talents to create a better future for us all. Learn more at visiontrust.org slash forward. Welcome back to Work, Love, Pray, Real Talk, Grounded in Truth. I'm Jordan Johnstone. We made it to February, y'all. I don't know, January feels like the eternal month, but judging from the amount of posts that I've seen on social media about making it to January 45th and other jokes that follow that same train of thought, I know I'm not alone in feeling relieved to be in a new month. Now, you may be expecting us to talk about love or relationships this month because duh, it's February, the love month. But we wanted to use this month to focus on something that is kind of a complete 180 from love, and that's the topic of loneliness. So does this make us the Valentine's Day Scrooge? I would argue no, and I would also argue that by discussing the topic of loneliness this month, we will actually help strengthen the love and relationships in your life. How? Well, you'll have to keep listening to find out. Joining me today to begin our discussion on loneliness is someone who has become a huge voice for speaking on it. Liz Forkin Bohannon is a dear friend of Forward, and we love her because she is fearless, empathetic, and not afraid to get in the trenches on things that she is passionate about. And what she is most passionate about these days is dissolving the stigma around loneliness and getting all of us very comfortable with identifying and resolving loneliness in our lives. So join me as I talk with Liz, and my hope is that by the end of this episode, you are seeing loneliness in a whole new light. So has loneliness, in your opinion, always been an issue, or has it grown to be a bigger problem in like the last couple of years? I would say both and. You know, I think the fundamental nature of American culture and society. I think some of the things that we as a culture are really good at and a lot of our like gifting and our ideals really kind of center around, well, independence, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's like in the fabric of our being as a culture and there's really beautiful parts of that. And I think it has since the founding of our country set us up to be on this trajectory And it has been wildly exasperated, not just in the last few years, but really in the last like decade, 10 to 15 years. We actually start to see the most stark trend happening in like the 2010 era, Mm. which I don't think coincidentally, uh, around 2012 is when smartphone usage and social media usage hit about 50% kind of population penetration here in the United States. And that is when you start to see a really steep curve towards isolation, towards loneliness, less time gathering, less time spent with friends. And then of course the pandemic 
exasperated that. But honestly, not as much. Like I think a lot of people blame it on COVID and on quarantine. And if you really look at the data, you actually see that the most stark kind of point, inflection point was about a decade before COVID hit. And so there were things that were already happening in our culture that, of course, kind of the quarantine era really exasperated or accelerated. But I actually think that there's deeper kind of design and culture choices that we've been making for decades now that have led us Mm. to where we are. That is so interesting. But it makes total sense. (laughs) Like, think about all the times that you're sitting there and you're maybe even with other people staring at your phone. You're on, you know, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Yeah, that to me, I buy that. That makes total sense. That's crazy. Well, and you know, I would definitely say that you're an introvert or sorry, an extrovert <laughs> or, or at least that you give off extrovert vibes. Yeah. Um, how have you dealt with loneliness or have you, I mean, even when you're able to connect and communicate so well with others, like, is that a problem that you face? So one, I'm actually not an extrovert. I am not nearly as extroverted as people think that I am. I put off an extrovert energy. Mm -hmm. The reality is it is so important to me to have quiet, alone, solitude time in order for me to be really healthy. And I joke that I feel like I have what I I refer to as pre-social anxiety. Like when I am in a space, I'm generally pretty energized and I need to recharge after it, but like Mm. I'm okay. I would say 95% of the time before a social gathering, I do not want to go. Like my (laughs) MO is I would rather be in my silk pajamas in my bed reading a book. Like that is my comfortable, happy recharge place. Mm -hmm. And so for me, being social and committing to that and being disciplined around it, honestly, in a lot of ways has felt a lot like a practice like exercise or eating healthy, something that maybe doesn't, for me, exercise is another thing. Like I know that there are people out there that love it and they're like, oh, I wake up and I crave to move my body. And I'm like, I genuinely feel like I would be fine never. Like, again, I want to sit in my bed and I want to read a book. Um, I never have had the emotion before I work out. This is something Mm -hmm. I want to do. The emotion is always you should do this because you know better. You know that your body needs this. You know that long-term this is the life that you want to live. You know the benefits, so do it. And have I ever once regretted working out? Literally, no. I have never gone for a walk or worked out and been like, that was a poor use of my time. I feel worse than I did. And I think being social is really similar to that. It is Mm -hmm. a muscle. And for some of us, it is something that comes naturally, that we crave, that we lean into. And for a lot of us, it actually is something maybe more akin to healthy eating or to exercise. And I actually think that if we changed the mentality around friendship, around being social, a little bit away from intrinsic desire Mm -hmm. and like follow your heart and follow your desire. And we talked about it more, like we talk about other things that we know are good for us, eating healthy, exercising, drinking water, um, which for some of us come naturally. For others of us, it's a little bit more obligatory, but we do it because we're Mm -hmm. adults and we know what's good for us. (laughs) We would actually be very well served because something Mm -hmm. has happened specifically in our culture around relationships. And this has happened in all sorts of relationships, whether we think about getting married, our spouse, kind of this notion of serendipity and of, you know, soulmates. And um, that has led, I think, to an expectation that is completely unrealistic that we have Mm -hmm. on our partners to fulfill 
our every social psychological yeah. <laughs> need, which I think yeah. is greatly contributing to things like the divorce rate in our country. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other things too. Um, but, but I definitely think that that's one of them. But even friendship, we kind of have this idea that it's like this magical, mystical thing. You know, like mm-hmm. we grew up watching Friends <laughs> – yeah. And seeing this yeah. like amazing group of friends that lives in New York City and we never really understood how they get there. You know, mm-hmm. it just kind of feels like this magical, mystical thing. And we have a lot, especially in our culture, a lot of like language around, well, if somebody doesn't serve you, leave them. Like mm-hmm. if somebody yeah. violates a boundary, put up your wall and you don't have to, you don't have to do that. And listen, if we are talking about truly toxic people or you are in an abusive relationship, all of that is advice that you should listen to. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I think we've gone too far. And I think we've gotten to a point in our culture where we've said, if it isn't easy, if it doesn't serve you, if it doesn't feel good right away, don't do it. You don't have to do that. Go home and watch Netflix and do self-care yeah. and drink wine in the bathtub or whatever it is. And that is a reality that I want to challenge because I don't think mm-hmm. it's real. I think friendship is like every other thing in life. It is good, but it is hard. And you have to commit to it and you have to be disciplined. And there are going to be times where you don't want to show up. And if we thought about it more like exercise of going, I don't want to do this right now, (laughs) but I know in the long run, I want to be a good friend and Mm -hmm. I want to have a strong social network and I want to be somebody that other people can depend on. So right now I got to put on my big girl pants and I got to do this thing, even though it does Mm -hmm. feel a little bit obligatory. Like I think our culture has gotten so sensitive towards anything that feels obligatory. Mm -hmm. And that makes me nervous because I think a strong society where people are cared for, where people are supported and where people are healthy, there is a base level of obligation to one another. And if we started thinking about friendship more like that, I think we would engage it differently in a way that would make us a lot more successful in combating loneliness than the kind of current narrative that we have around it right now. Yeah. Well, and you're speaking my language because I am an introvert, (laughs) but like you, I probably do give off this air maybe of, oh, but you talk to people. Well, because I've, like you said, I've made myself do it. You know, I, you, you do have to get to a point where you go, is this comfortable? No. Do I like this? Mm, But you got to (laughs) do, you know, but you know, as an introvert, I would say that, you know, I may seem like I would welcome a like dash of aloneness in my life. And it does kind of sound weird to say that, but I know that fellow introverts know what I'm talking about, but that doesn't mean that I haven't been lonely. It just hits me at a different time than it might to someone who is like far more outgoing and fueled by like interpersonal interactions. So that raised a question for me though, that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on. And that is, you know, does your personality type dictate when and how you're going to feel true loneliness? Dictate? Probably not. Influence? Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So every, so a couple things. One, I want to make a distinction between loneliness and solitude. Okay. Loneliness is actually the psychological state, the painful psychological state that arises when you have the feeling of, I don't have the support that I need to survive and or thrive. Yeah. That is that is loneliness of like, I am not known. I don't have people to call. I don't really feel like I have anybody that I can tell the full truth to that's going to follow up that isn't going to leave the room. 
or is just going to support me honestly on like more of a logistical level. Like that is part of community mm-hmm. is building, building communities and building places and spaces that make it actually conducive to people just supporting one another. Solitude is being alone is like the physical act of kind of isolating yourself. And that is actually an ingredient to a, a healthy life. Like if you are not practicing solitude and for some of us, that comes very naturally. That's kind of our like instinct is solitude. Those are the folks I think that actually need to be pressing more in to community. Mm-hmm. And for some people, solitude is terrifying. <laughs> and yeah. then they yeah. avoid it at all costs. Mm-hmm. And the self-work for those folks is really leaning in to that of quieting your mind, quieting mm-hmm. your soul, becoming very comfortable with your own company. So I believe that engaging deeply on a social level is an ingredient of a healthy life. Solitude is also an ingredient of a healthy life. When it comes to kind of our natural disposition, what we need in order to answer that question of do you have the support on a regular basis that you need to thrive, what that takes is going to be different for different people. Now, the social science does show that there are some kind of like averages you know, there are, there's kind of a limit to, we kind of have these different like social circles. We have like our best, best people, our kind of closest confidants, and that can be anywhere between one and four people. And then we kind of have this other circle and the average person can keep up kind of intimate, authentic relationships with about 12 people. And then you have this kind of ring of 25 people, 40 people, and then up to 125 people of kind of, and that's where you really get into acquaintances. So there are actually some generals of just like what humans can contribute and what they can receive from one another that's important to keep in mind. But within that, it's going to be different for each of us. So your capacity for really close friendship and what you're able to give, but also even what you're able to receive and what you need in order to answer that question of like, yeah, generally I feel like I have the support and relationship kind of network that I need to thrive can be different from person to person. Mm -hmm. They do show that even one close friend one close friend that you feel like you can truly share openly, authentically with, honestly, who's going to show up for you in hard times makes an incredible difference in your psychological health. And and the gains are actually diminishing, right? So like going Mm -hmm. from four to five or five to six is really different than going from zero to one or even one to two. Interestingly Mm -hmm. enough, they show that close family relationships don't really move the needle. Um, which is really fascinating that there is this dynamic that there is something really specifically about friendship, Mm -hmm. something that a friend is able to provide that even a close relationship with a spouse or, you know, with a parent figure or a sibling, I'm not saying that those aren't important, but I am saying that when it comes to fighting the type of loneliness that we're, that we're fighting in America here right now, friendship is actually plays a really unique part of it. And it's also the thing that we've seen the swiftest, decline in. So we've Mm. overall seen a pretty big increase in time spent alone. But in the last 10 years, in 2012, the average American was spending about 6.5 hours a week with their friends. Mm. Today, you know, just a little bit more than a decade later, that has decreased by over 60%. And now the average American is spending less than two hours a week with friends. That is an enormous behavioral shift that we have seen in a relatively short amount of time. It is also, there's a huge impact. There's Mm -hmm. a huge impact. 66% of Americans would say that they struggle with loneliness. 70% of people in leadership positions would say they are regularly feeling unsupported or alone. Um, For the first time in recorded human history, which I think that this is the most alarming statistic of all, 
young people in America are reporting that they are more lonely than the sick or the elderly, which have wow. historically always been the loneliest populations. Yeah. Men specifically are five times lonelier today in friendship than they were in 1990. Hmm. And one out of every five moms would say that they have the support. They have a community that they feel like they can trust with their faults or their weaknesses. So the vast majority of mothers in America would say, I, I don't feel supported. I'm regularly struggling with loneliness. Mm -hmm. These statistics, they're like so alarming. And we have, I don't know what it is that like, we've kind of been like, mm, I guess that's just like the way it is. You know, like mm -hmm. I see these memes yeah. on the internet all the time, you know, and these kind of like, and everybody, everybody piles on and like, yeah, you know, there's one about like, you know, it takes a village to raise a child and it's the, the, you know, the mom and she's going, so where's my village? Yeah. Like, is there a 1-800 number that I can call? Yeah. And these memes always garner so much attention because so many people identify with it of going like, you hear these phrases, you need community, you need your village, but like, what, you know, what number do I call? Of course, the answer is there is no number. There is no number to call. It doesn't exist. It's not a thing that you can just decide you're in need and you're going to like dial up your community who's all of a sudden going to be there to support you. It is like every other good thing in your life. If you want it to exist, you have to take it seriously. You have to prioritize it. You have to commit. You have to sacrifice for it. Um, and you have to lean in even when it's uncomfortable. And that's kind of that narrative shift that I want to be a part of with how we talk about relationships and friendships in America, um, because it's getting pretty dire. In fact, the Surgeon General of the United States issued an 80-page advisory naming loneliness as the single biggest threat facing mental and physical health mm. to Americans right now. And mm. um, so that's hopeful for me in the sense that like my hope is at the point that the Surgeon General says this is a yeah. this is a dire situation that mm -hmm. we as a culture start to lean in and take it a little bit more seriously. Yeah. You know, and a couple of things I take from that, you know, when you mentioned one friend makes a big difference and that, you know, close family friendships or relationships don't really apply, you know, immediately I went, well, that's because it's a genuine choice. You know, when you have mm. that friend, it's a genuine thing. And that's maybe why it makes such a big difference because you can sit there and go, wow, that person like chose me. Like they chose mm. to be my friend. They chose to open up to me. Not that, you know, like you said, family relationships are very important, but it is kind of like, well, you're born into that. <laughs> like there's really no choice. Like you have no choice, but to be my sibling or, you know, that. And, you know, then moving into what you said about like, you know, young people are having an extreme problem with this. And I think that also goes back to what you said about the surge in social media and technology and, you know, you share everything <laughs> nowadays, I feel like. And I, that's a, that, I think that that has stripped away the genuineness aspect of like a true connection with someone is, well, you know, no, I know how they are because this is, you know, everything they're posting about. And yeah, it's, it's not real most of the time. Like they, you have, you know, Instagram version, real life version, you know, that's another thing I see all the time. And you know, I, that, ugh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I go back and forth because social media, you know, it's, it's a great tool. Yes. It, it probably originally was meant as a way to either create new connections or maintain connections with people that you aren't, you, you know, geographically close to anymore. But I think it's just morphed into something that is playing a huge role in all of this. 
Yeah. I think we have a lot of work to do around media literacy in that sense. I, I think that social media, I'm glad it exists. Yeah, like I am glad technology exists. Yeah. I have been able to build a global company, a global true community. There are people who have traditionally not had a voice, who have been given a voice. There's so many beautiful aspects if you use the tool appropriately. Where yeah. we go wrong is when we, I think largely unknowingly, we are the tools and social media is using us, right? You've got these giant, the most powerful um, corporations in the entire world and we are working, we are kind of slaving away for them and they are not intending it for our good. And I'm not saying that if you work at Meta, you're a malicious person by any means, but I'm saying like their interest is the corporate interest and they need us to contribute to the platform and use it in a specific way Mm -hmm. that is not particularly designed for our wellness. And so it's, to me, it's less about, you know, I feel like there's a a big movement right now of people, you know, just like fantasizing about homesteading or like going off the grid. There's kind of this like really extreme reaction to what's happening in culture right now. I feel like half of my Instagram feed is like, you know, women who are, I don't know how, somehow very wealthy, but all they do is like collect chicken eggs. But it's like, there's like (laughs) this, you know, like movement towards an extreme disconnect. Also, they're the same ones that are putting it on the internet. So, you know, obviously you're not completely (laughs) disconnecting. I, I also believe that there's a healthier, more kind of like moderated middle of how we choose to use social media. Mm -hmm. Um, and you should have some rules around it for yourself. And I don't think the rules are the same for every person, but some kind of key questions that you ask yourself when you're contributing to the platform. And I think also some key questions that you ask yourself when you're consuming the platform and being hyper aware of exactly what you just said of like, there isn't a massive difference between watching, um, stories on Instagram and watching a commercial in between television. Yeah. Both are highly edited. Both are created and put into the world in order to achieve an outcome that isn't necessarily one for your good or Mm -hmm. two to perpetuate, um, a healthy, relationship. Now, I actually believe that that can happen. Like this is Mm -hmm. such a silly little example, but um, we just got a new pastor at our church and our old pastor did not use social media and our new pastor does. And so we follow each other on social media. And I've only actually had the um, opportunity to interact with him once in person. Um, I mean, he's only been our pastor for a very short amount of time, but I kind of am feeling like, okay, I'm I'm getting an understanding of who he is, of his family life, of the books that he's reading. He's able to see into my life. I we were just a part of we had a massive natural disaster situation. We had a hundred foot tree that came down on our house, and I was posting about it on social media, you know. And so he knows, and he's reaching out and like, what can the church do? Mm-hmm. To me, I I was just struck by like, oh my gosh, this is such a beautiful example Mm -hmm. of how social media actually is a beautiful way of connecting and of knowing. Um, And things that if we weren't on social media, it would take longer to kind of build that familiarity, Mm -hmm. to have awareness of what's happening in one another's lives. So if we, I think if we see it that way, it actually is a really, really beautiful tool. The problem is when we turn off the part of our brains that recognizes (laughs) like this is, this is more edited and more selective than 
you know, the most highly edited soap opera. And we just like acknowledge that and shift. This is not you. This is not the Truman Show. You are not watching your friend's real life. You are watching a 1% highly selective, highly curated part of their life. Take it for what it is. That could actually be a building block to building relationships and familiarity if you let it. Um, Mm -hmm. But it can also be a huge deterrent. Yeah. So you spoke at Life Church, and the title of your discussion was You Are Not Alone in Feeling Alone, which is exactly why we were so excited to have you talk to our forward audience about loneliness. And, you know, side note, if you want to watch this talk, we will link it in the show notes. But, you know, God is using you to voice a problem that many of us face and may even feel like we're the only ones who feel lonely. (laughs) So today, you know, you and I spoke prior to recording and you're going to share with us five ways that anyone can combat loneliness. And the first way might feel a little obvious, but it is so important. And that is knowing that you are not alone in how you feel. So why is this an important first way to combat loneliness for you? There is so much shame and there is so much stigma around being lonely in our culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason that I know this is because 66% of Americans when asked privately or anonymously would say that they're struggling with loneliness. Less than 12% of people are willing to admit it or talk about it. So that's Mm -hmm. a very big delta that you probably don't see with a lot of other um, ailments in society, right? Like somebody Mm -hmm. who has a broken leg is not afraid to admit or to say that they have a broken leg. (laughs) Now, there are definitely some other things, you know, you think about some mental health Mm -hmm. issues that there's, you know, stigma around. Our culture has actually, I think, made an enormous amount of beautiful progress when it comes to de-shaming a lot of things that a lot mm-hmm. of people struggle with um, that historically even 10 years ago you could not yeah. say out loud. And now you can talk about it. Mm-hmm. And it's in I think it's beautiful. I think it is progress at its finest that there is there is de-shaming to a lot of things. We have a lot of room to grow um, in the area of still de-shaming loneliness. It is still yeah. something that people feel like if I admit that I'm lonely, do I, I'm admitting that I'm a loser, yeah. that I don't have friends, that I'm not yeah. likable, that I'm not lovable, that I'm annoying, that there is actually something broken or messed up about me that, you know, maybe other people can see that I can't. I mean, that's a, that is a dark spiral yeah. to go down when yeah. you go, when you go, is that what I'm admitting to if I admit that I'm lonely? Mm. And so I think the very first thing that we need to do as a culture is to de-shame loneliness and to say, yeah. listen, if you're lonely, Congratulations, you're pretty average. You know, one yeah. of the concepts that I talk about in my book, Beginner's Pluck, is this idea of owning your average. Yeah. And a lot of people are a little bit demoralized when they hear that. They're like, wait, what? I grew up hearing that I was extraordinary and I've been trying yeah. to prove that my entire life. And you're just telling me I'm average and I'm here to go, like, mm, statistically speaking, that's how averages work. So yeah, you probably are somewhere in the center of the bell curve when it comes to your giftedness, your inherent talent, your intelligence. Like my guess is, Jordan, I don't know you that well. You're probably like average-ish. You're somewhere in that bell curve, as am I. Um, You're also pretty average when it comes to the things that plague you, your insecurities, your weaknesses. We also have a tendency to kind of think we're in these like special snowflakes. I'm like, well, yeah. no one struggles, you know, with this like yeah. I do. And what that actually leads to is an immense amount of suffering. Yeah. So there is a difference. There is a difference between, I believe, pain and suffering. Hmm. Pain is an intrinsic part 
of being a human. You cannot live life without pain. And in fact, I would say it's not only an inherent part of the human experience, it's actually a really necessary and beautiful part of Mm -hmm. of the human experience. Um, And as we kind of live life in this hopefulness of kind of becoming more and more whole pain and how we deal with pain is actually part of that process. That being said, Anybody who's trying to tell you anything that they're a book they're trying to sell you, a course, a piece of clothing that is going to help you feel less pain in your life, it's it's a lie. Can't stop pain from happening. Yeah. Suffering is the narrative and the story that we then attach to our Mm -hmm. pain. And I do believe that we can decrease suffering. And I actually think community is a huge part of that. So for an example, you fall down the stairs and you break your leg that's very painful. Like Mm -hmm. you are literally experiencing, you're experiencing the physical pain of a broken bone in your body. That's already something to deal with. And like, you can't stop bad things from happening. Hopefully, you know, you have access to good healthcare and things that can help you heal, but it's still a painful thing. Suffering is when three days later you're laying in bed and you're like, man, I have this broken leg and I am such a burden to everybody Mm -hmm. around me. And I'm starting to feel depressed and anxious because I can't contribute and I'm used to being able to contribute and that's where I get my worth and my value. And my people, like how much longer do I have that they're going to take care of me because I can't give them something back and then they're going to leave me and they're going to abandon me or like my boss thinks I'm like slacking and I had all of these things to do and I measure my success in a year by what I'm able to accomplish and this was a huge setback and on and on and on and on. That's actually suffering. And there's a degree to which we choose to participate in that that narrative. We can Mm -hmm. either engage it and indulge it or we can be really active participants in trying to, to reframe and rewire that narrative and then lessen our own suffering. I believe that the pain of loneliness is real. That's a psychological state that can be measured. And by the way, how crazy is this? Our bodies respond to the psychological pain Hmm. of loneliness just as intensely as we would respond to the physical pain of getting punched in the stomach. Wow. So like your brain, if you had like a brain scan MRI, right? And somebody just told you, you know, or whatever, you're on Instagram and you see that your friends are gathered and and they went to dinner and they didn't invite you. And so that, of course, you're going, they don't love me. I'm alone. I'm not in the in crowd. The pain that you are experiencing laying in your bed, scrolling Instagram, your brain is doing the same thing on a scan as it would be if somebody walked into your bedroom and socked you in the stomach. And so I think even just recognizing like that's valid. We have to pay attention to this. Like the physiological impact of this pain on us, you're not making it up. It is real. It is impacting your body. It is creating a whole cascade of, of hormones and of a chemical response that you are now dealing with. So one, it's going, that pain is real. And there is suffering that we attach to that pain, which is I'm lonely because I'm not good enough, because I'm Mm -hmm. broken, because I'm unworthy. This is a unique problem that I have. No one else is suffering like I am. That's suffering that you're actually choosing to believe and to engage in. And so the first thing that we can do is to just de-shame loneliness. One of the ways, one of the ways in which we de-shame loneliness is we stop talking about it as much as an individual problem and we start talking about it like a cultural collective problem. Mm. And so one of the things that I love to say is like loneliness isn't just a you issue. Loneliness is actually an us issue. We have designed a culture in many ways 
it is perfectly designed to get the result that it is getting, right? Yeah. We, mm-hmm. we input certain priorities and certain values and you index on those over and over and over again, you are going to get a certain result from that design. We have designed a culture that is perfectly designed to get the results of loneliness that it's getting. And so in order to change the outcome, we have to change the design of culture. And that's an us thing. That's not just a you thing or it's not just a me thing. And I think when we start thinking about it collectively, a lot of that kind of like shame and additional suffering that we feel and being lonely starts to also decrease. Yeah. So the next two ways that you say that someone can combat loneliness have one major shared ingredient we've already talked about a little bit and that's community. So how can you use community to overcome loneliness in your life? Yeah, I mean I think that community and authentic committed relationships is the only answer. That is the antidote yeah. to loneliness. There is no way to solve the pain of loneliness except to change the to change the circumstances um, and to create and to build those relationships, which does lead me, I don't know if this is my third point, but if not, it should be, is we have to go from thinking about finding community and recognize that it's not something that you find, it's something you build. Now, this is the exact same language, kind of the previous five years of my life, I feel like one of the drums that I really beat was around purpose and passion. Mm -hmm. And I really dove into the semantics of we've got to stop saying stupid stuff like go find, you know, once you find your passion, you're never going to work a day in your life. Or once you find (laughs) your purpose and the reason that God created you, everything's going to fall into place. I hate the word find. I hate it. That's so strong, but I think I kind of do. Because it automatically kind of just puts you in this place where you've got weird expectations that are now there you're no longer actually like, it kind of like chips away at our own sense of autonomy. There's kind of like a mysticism that's involved. You know, I think about like, if I lose my keys, am I going to find them? I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to find them. And (laughs) like, I can do my best, but also, I don't know when you lose something, I don't know about you, but when I lose something, it really does feel like I'm going to do my best to retrace my steps. And man, part of this is just going to be luck. Like, am I going to find my keys or not? That is a very different mentality. Um, And then also, by the way, when you find your keys, they're just there. They're like fully formed. They're there. They're waiting for you. And there's kind of this like aha moment. Now you have what you need. You can go out of your house. You can drive your car. Like it was a moment in time that got fixed because you found it. So that's kind of what conjures up when we talk about finding. When we simply replace the word find with build, everything Mm. changes. Everything changes. All of a sudden, I'm not looking for something that already exists. I'm going, I think if I want it to exist, I have to build it. Well, how do you build things? Well, you got to take steps towards it. You know, like you got to have a plan. You got to have an idea. You got to have a blueprint. But pretty soon, you got to like go to the hardware store and you got to start asking somebody who knows more about how to build this thing than you do. And then you got to get the supplies and then you got to, you're slowly moving towards it. There's no expectation when you're like, I'm going to build a house or I'm going to build a back deck that you're just going to like work kind of hard, but then one day you're just going to wake up and it's going to be there. It's like, nope, it will be progress. It'll be slow. It'll be steady. There will be setbacks. But one day, eventually I'm going to have this beautiful back deck that I'm going to stand on. And I'm going to know exactly how I got there because I built the dang thing. Yeah. There is a level of responsibility and autonomy. And I actually think that that leads to a deep sense of hopefulness. Hmm. There is also, when we use the word build, intrinsically, we start, the images that 
conjure up, right? Of like, I'm building something. Ooh, that's like tiring. Like I'm using my muscles. I'm like sweating. It's going to be long. It's probably going to be boring at times. There are going to be times where I'm like frustrated. I do work and then I have to redo the work. That is like totally a different mentality to enter into community with than I've just got to find it. Yeah. And so what happens is we fe- we see people that have it and we see the fruit of it and we go, I just have to find that. I just have to find my my girl gang that already exists. Um, and I just have to find them and then I have to, you know, figure out how to get in and then it'll all perfectly fit. And then I'm just going to be like happy and I'll be one of the not lonely people. And it just, in all of my years of thinking about community building and friendship, I can just say it doesn't ever work like that. I have yeah. never once met someone who goes, yeah, I was like super lonely. And then I showed up at this thing and I found my people. I just don't think it works like that. Like, because the whole nature of relationship is that you are, it's a building block. Like the only thing that makes it rich 15 steps down the line is that you took those 15 steps to get there together. And there is no way to bypass that. There is no shortcut to that. And so I think if we can just think about it differently, I think if we can go from, I just got to, well, she, she clearly found her community. Now I just got to find mine. Mm -hmm. Go, okay, if I want community, this is on me. I'm going to have to build it. What's the first step? It changes everything. Yeah. Well, and the last way that someone can fight off loneliness feels like one that is key to keeping that loneliness at bay once you overcome it. So tell us about the power of reflective listening. Ooh-wee, the power of reflective listening. Listen, if you want to build community and you want deep friendships that are reliable, that are marked by authenticity and integrity and knowing and commitment, you're going to need to learn how to listen. Yeah. You're going to need to learn how to listen and specifically not just listen. Here's the thing. I think there are people that are like, oh, I'm a good listener. Like Mm -hmm. if you come to me and you're like, my dog died, I can listen to you talk about your dog die all day long and I'll just sit there and I'll be empathetic. That's great. That's one type of listening. There is a very different type of listening surrounding conflict, surrounding tension, surrounding misunderstandings. When something happens in a relationship that causes a fissure, all of a sudden, those of us who are really good at listening to people's problems when they have nothing to do with us can really struggle. And we feel super uncomfortable. There's generally two types of people when it comes to conflict. Of course, everything is more nuanced than that, but you could kind of boil it down to there are people that are terrified of conflict and they will do everything that they can to avoid it. And and this can come in a lot of different, you know, avoidance mechanisms, right? It can be just pretending that everything's fine, ignoring it, stuffing it down, gaslighting yourself even of just like, it's silly that I, I had my feelings hurt by that. You're, you're being too sensitive. Just stuff those feelings down. It can be just like avoiding the entire situation, avoiding the person. Like I would rather literally just not have to see that person again than have to deal with conflict. And then there are folks that are probably too comfortable with conflict, um, that something hard happens and they immediately get kind of combative and start to point the finger. And it's usually at the other person, right? Mm -hmm. Like this happened because you are this, or you always do this. And those folks generally are not very quick to kind of ask themselves the very important question of like, hmm, what, how did I participate in this? What's the other side of this story? The reality is we're all making up stories all of the time. We all all are. There's no such thing as like a, a, a circumstance that just happens. And there's like no objective truth in a lot of ways 
because it is so influenced by how you experienced that thing that happened. So two people can have two very different stories about the exact same situation, and both stories can have an element of truth to them and are influenced by the truth that we bring into it. That's a long way of saying if we don't do the work of being people who build the skill of having hard conversations, of leaning in when it gets tough, of reconciling, you will never be somebody who has relationships that feel like you can go, I know this person loves me. Mm. And I know that they're not going to leave the room. And I know that even when conflict arises, we have the tools that we need to work through this. And so I'm not going to get scared and run away. I'm also have this is not my first rodeo. I'm not going to come in hot and assume that I don't have any responsibility in this. I am going to come to the table with the hope and with the purpose of really understanding the other person's perspective um, and of also vulnerably sharing mine as well mm-hmm. and and building the trust that, that the person on the other side is going to be able to um, participate in that. These things don't naturally happen, definitely not in our culture. We did not grow up learning how to have these conversations. Uh, that was not something that was modeled to me. I never took a class on it. I never, like, it was just like, it's bananas to me that I know certain things about geometry. <laughs> like, yeah. that I learned in ninth grade and I never formally learned how to effectively deal with conflict. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a key ingredient into having meaningful, authentic, committed relationships. And you got to teach it like any other skill. Um, It's not just something that you could be good at. Like you got to approach it and go, I am assuming I'm pretty basic at this because I've never learned it before. Great. I'm a beginner. It's channeling that beginner's pluck, you know, and just going like, okay, I am... 30 years old and I need to learn how to deal with conflict. I'm going to read a book. I'm going to take a course. I'm going to use this reflective listening sheet. I'm going to practice it in a safe context with, um, you know, with a a partner or a friend. And we're going to talk about what we do when we experience conflict. Like we're going to say, Hey, in this friendship, in this relationship, in this community group, in this hobby group, like how do we, when hard things come up, because they will, let's get an agreement with how we want to deal with them. And then you're even de-shaming when we acknowledge that we understand hard things will come up in relationships and we create a safe kind of container and space for that. It really changes even how the conflict feels. So one of my first kind of earliest experiments in community building was in college. I lived with a group of six women. And one of the things that we did that I think fundamentally changed the fabric of our relationship is we had a roommate meeting every Monday night at 10 p.m. That's how you know we were in college. We were meeting at 10 p.m. Come on. 10 p.m. I know. But we picked a time that we were like, there will be no other conflicts. Like everybody can be at home at 10 p.m. on a Monday night. There are no practices. There are no games. There are no classes. There are no extracurricular things happening. Probably no parties because it's Monday night, you know. So 10 p.m. on Monday night, the first thing that we did is we said it's a non-negotiable. This is not something that you come to when you feel like it, when you have energy for it, when you happen to be around. Like you will orient your schedule around prioritizing being together at 10 p.m. on a Monday night. And there were multiple different aspects to what we wanted to do in that roommate meeting. But one of the core aspects was this is a time for us to talk about anything that needs to be talked about. We are six women sharing one house. Conflict is going to emerge. There are going to be things. We have different preferences. We have different styles, different levels of responsibility and cleanliness and volume. So many things. Like we're just acknowledging 
we're going to get on each other's nerves (laughs) and we're going to do things that maybe unintentionally hurt one another or annoy each other or whatever. Let's let's just say, duh, obviously that's going to happen. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be friends. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. That means we're six humans living in a shared space together. Obviously, we're going to step on each other's toes. So let's create a container where the expectation is you come and you have something to share. You have something to say. And the hope is it is a relatively small thing that doesn't become a bigger thing because you have created an appropriate and designated container to have that time. And it is amazing how if you know that that is what the space is dedicated to, your feelings of surprise, of hurt, of being bombarded, of feeling defensive, all of those things actually kind of go away. And you're like, oh, the point of this meeting is to kind of hear about what's not working. So let's talk about what's not working. Let's hear each other out and let's collaboratively kind of trying to come up with a different solution. Again, it kind of comes back to the pain and the suffering. You're removing Mm -hmm. the suffering because you're going like, I'm not a bad person because I did that. Like she doesn't think I'm evil. We have different styles and different ways of going about this and we need to come up with a solution that works for both of us. Great. It just like takes so much of the drama out of it. Um, And I fundamentally believe those six women, myself included, so five others, are, they're my ride or dies. These are women that I will literally go to the grave in relationship with holding some of my deepest, most tender stories and grief and sorrow and also the people that I want to share my joy and my triumph with. I mean, it's like the level of support that these women have been for me over the last, gosh, probably close to 20 years now is so significant. But I deeply believe it's because of just a few key practices that we put into place early on in our relationship that actually kind of enabled that longevity and health. What was your biggest takeaway from Liz's insights? Let us know by leaving a review on your preferred listening platform or leave a comment when we share this episode on Forward Social Media. For more information about today's episode, just go to forwardwomen.org slash podcast. That's the number four, W-O-R-D-W-O-M-E-N dot org slash podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to Work, Love, Pray on your favorite listening platform and leave us a review. Your review will help more people discover Work, Love, Pray, so your feedback is greatly appreciated. As you move forward on your journey to work, love, and pray well, don't forget to make time for real talk grounded in truth.